0: I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In today's episode, I speak with Seth Tuckerman, co-founder of Baruka's. I decided to talk to Seth because I was fascinated by the taste and the story of the Baruka Nut. I learned that these nuts weren't just a delicious superfood, but they also have the potential to save one of the most ecologically important and biodiverse regions on Earth while providing high-paying jobs for the local farmers. But this conversation is about a lot more than the health and environmental power packed in these nuts. Seth himself has a very unique background. He's a serial entrepreneur and has worked to found or co-found a number of multi-million dollar businesses, including Beachbody Fitness and Real Appeal. In this episode, we talk about Seth's background and how and why he started Baruka's. We then get into the unique qualities of the Baruka's nut and why no one managed to commercialize production and distribution of this nut until now. We then get into the strategies Seth and Barukas are using to build a market for this product, as well as applications for the Barukas nut and potential for it to be turned into plant-based milks, butters, and beyond. We conclude with his goals for the company and the impact Seth hopes to make with Barukas in the years ahead. Overall, I'd say besides being a very fascinating and insightful conversation about food, health, and sustainability, this conversation is peppered with a lot of interesting lessons about launching a business and developing a go-to-market strategy. I also really enjoyed learning about Seth's basic rule of business, which he learned more than 40 years ago. It's a simple way of approaching literally any business venture. I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. Seth Tuckerman, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Well, oh, thank you, Neil. No,
2: I'm glad to be here.
0: I don't know if people listening to this have uh, tried the Baruca nut, but I'm going to describe the experience of tasting it for the first time. I love it. So, and I don't often say that about a nut because, you know, one would think every nut that needs to be discovered should have been discovered by now and has been discovered by now. Uh, but when I heard about this new nut, and the incredible story behind that nut, I was intrigued. And it wasn't the first time I've been told about a product that is doing great for um, the community and the land where it comes from. Uh, the only problem is when you taste it, the product doesn't taste great. Uh, in this case, I tasted the barooka nut, and it is, uh, I would describe it as a cross between an almond and a peanut. Uh, yet it tastes lighter. And it's become, in the last few weeks, one of my favorite sna- go-to snacks uh, throughout the day. So first and foremost, thank you for introducing me to The Nut, because I think it's it's a great new addition to my my snacking routine and a healthy snack nonetheless. Um, but anyway, we'll get back into what The Nut's all about, but I want to start with, with your background, set because you have a fascinating background that then led you into this world of uh, bringing a a nut that no one seems to have heard of before uh, into uh, the mainstream food industry. So uh, give us a sense of what you've been doing with your life leading up to the point where you launched Baruchas.
2: Well, I won't draw that out too long because I'm an old dude. I'm 63 and I started working in the food industry when I was 14, scooping ice cream at a Baskin and Robbins. Uh, So I won't go into too much detail, but... The short story is um, the first 16 years of my career, after I graduated from college, was in the uh, big multinational branded food space. I started with the Quaker Oats Company, was there for six years, and then I uh, ended up at, the, uh, at Nestle, which is the biggest branded food company in the world, in their uh, headquarters, which is in Switzerland. Uh, they actually own more brands than any other company in the world in anything, and you walk through a grocery store almost anywhere in the world, you'll find that maybe 10, 15% of all the brands in that store that you would have no idea belong to Nestle are actually Nestle products. Um, And uh, from Nestle, I went to Gerber Baby Food when it was still an independent New York Stock Exchange traded company. It's now actually part of Nestle after Mm -hmm. being sold first to a pharmaceutical company and then eventually the pharmaceutical company sold it to Nestle. So 16 years of... uh, essentially working with foods and importantly, I'll mention because it has something to do with barukas. that during that time, what I learned about foods in that industry was everything was about taste and low cost. And I sat through so many R and D meetings. I started out on the marketing side of things, but have a, had a very extensive training program across market research and production planning and working in a factory and working in sales. But I came up through really marketing and brand management. Um, And when you sit as a brand manager, in the olden days at least, in these meetings where we were coming up with new food products, it was always about uh, it's got to be the best tasting thing you can have. It's got to have um, the lowest possible cost, and then we're going to get it into the widest possible distribution, which is basically the Mm Coca-Cola theme of how you make a gigantic business out of food. Uh, Interestingly, though, I realize in retrospect That It never came up what kind of nutrition was in the product or um, what it did or didn't do for the planet. It just wasn't a consideration. And it's not because any of us were evil. We just didn't think about those things because we were very busy trying to figure out how to help our companies and their shareholders make a lot more money by making something that people would buy a lot of Mm -hmm. and use a a lot of. And uh, nutrition just wasn't really on people's minds is the truth. The consumers weren't that concerned about it. Um, So after the food industry, um, I actually took quite a long midlife break with my wife, uh, who had worked in all those same companies uh, with me. She was also a brand manager originally. And uh, we took a midlife break to raise our family. And about 10 years later, uh, I went back into the business world, this time picking stocks for a big money management firm, picking branded food stocks and (laughs) retailers. Uh, Then we did an entrepreneurial startup with a a friend and neighbor that was a jeans company that we started in the garage and uh, took about five years to get it up into a $60 million business with uh, being distributed in boutiques all over the world, just in very high-end boutiques. After the jeans, uh, I started to work for Beachbody uh, in the infomercial space, which was something entirely new to me. And Another thing that was entirely new to me, it was all about fitness and fitness products. Mm -hmm. Uh, I joined the company in 2007 around the time we were uh, launching P90X, which became for a while kind of a household name. And you probably couldn't turn on the TV in those days without seeing an infomercial for P90X. And then uh, we went to Insanity. That was another big hit. And uh, I worked with Beachbody for about six years. And um, there's a connection there with Baruchas, because while I was there, we were trying to develop a shake product. Because when you sell fitness videos, once you've sold it, and you've sold people a chin-up bar and a few other things that they can use with it, there's really nothing else to sell them except your next fitness product. And so we thought, well, if we had uh, some kind of a consumable product, uh, since people who bought our products tended to really love them and they'd become a really important part of their life. And they wanted something else that they could use. Um, We decided to develop a shake. Um, It was the owner of the business's idea. His name's Carl Deichler, And uh, he he had the idea of a shake that would be named Shakeology. And uh, he found, along with his wife at the time, a man whose name is Darren O'Lean, to help them formulate I should say to help us. I was the chief operating officer of the company to help us formulate um, a shake. And uh, Darren's idea was to put 28 different superfoods into this shake, which made it a fascinating product, an incredibly healthy product. Um, and initially a very hard-to-drink product because, as you pointed out— Which year out, <laughs> was this, just to so put some context That's 2007. Okay. 2007, we started Um and as you suggested at the beginning, most superfoods are hard to eat. You have to really want them to eat them. And uh, the biggest challenge initially of Shakeology, College, which I think it took us at least a year to solve, was to make something that didn't taste just like grass and dirt, but Tasted like something that was good enough to drink, mm-hmm. and even though I think even today probably the product has a little bit of a grassy overtone, it's forgivable because it's so healthy and it's really reasonably <laughs> delicious. So you know you can at least tell people you know it's it's a good product to drink, and uh, that's really the story of Baruca. Sort of starts from the jumping-off point that uh, as Darren formulated this thing with all these superfoods in it, the business grew really rapidly. And pretty soon, there wasn't enough of any of these ingredients in the world to supply the needs, to fulfill the production needs. And since I was the um, chief operating officer, it fell to me to figure out how to get more of natural products that uh, weren't being grown. So Darren and I, along with my wife, by the way, traveled all over the world uh, to all these different places where the superfoods came from. You had mentioned to me Sasha Inchi. That was one of them. (laughs) and I spent a lot of time in Tarapoto, Peru, where Sasha Inchi was really the – that's kind of the, the headquarters of where you grow it or where it grows naturally. I spent a lot of time with Darren uh, getting farm, local farmers and contracting them to grow these exotic things that they weren't used to growing either uh, and promising them that we would buy all that they would uh, – that they could grow. Um, so that's how I met Darren, and it's through Darren that I discovered Baruchas. Uh, many many years later, after Beachbody, actually I retired, and in my retirement, um, United Health Group, which is the biggest um, health care uh, provider and insurer in the United States, I think they write about twenty five percent of all of the health insurance plan in the United States. They were struggling to try to keep people from getting diabetes, which is a huge problem for them and for the country because there's something like 86 million Americans who are on their way to getting diabetes already and have been diagnosed with something that's called Mm -hmm. pre-diabetes. And there are uh, uh, fitness programs that will keep you from getting diabetes if you follow them. Uh, United Health Group had put an enormous amount of money into these and had a really good program, but they were having an incredibly hard time convincing anybody to actually do the program even though it was free for them. And even though it cost them six, dollars $700 per person to put someone through the program, they just couldn't figure out how to get people to want to participate. They realized from looking at Beachbody that there were companies out there that could persuade people on television through things like infomercials mm-hmm. to get fit. And they just wondered what if there was some way to combine the sort of magic of the companies that do that with their really intense and deep knowledge of how you get genuine medical weight loss that lasts a lifetime and keeps you from getting diseases. Um, they found me in my retirement <laughs> and I, and eventually they um, they themselves funded a company for me to uh, develop to essentially take their prediabetes product and turn it into something that uh, people would actually do. And I loved the idea because the consumers were going to get the product for free. It was going to be actually quite expensive to do it because real weight loss, in fact, costs a fair deal of money. Um, and I just thought it was too amazing to stay in retirement and miss out on that. And it it uh, became... Uh, what we developed became very successful very quickly. And eventually the... A division of United Health Group, which is called Optum, mm. um, bought the product, uh, bought the whole company. Um, when it was originally set up, the ventures group within United Health Group owned most of it. And then the management team owned a, a significant minority of it. And uh, it was successful enough after a couple of years that um, Optum just bought the whole thing. Mm. And uh, at that point, actually, I took the earnings from that, from the sellout, and put it into a uh, charitable trust and thought, now I'm really going to retire. <laughs>
0: Were <Well>, you <laughs> already um, had discovered the baru nut at this point? No. Okay. I, so this I knew do...
2: nothing about it. So I just told you all the background because mm-hmm. I'm sitting there now happily <laughs> with some the money in a trust, you know, trying <laughs> to just enjoy life and think about what do you do when there's really nothing left to do. And uh, Darren shows up at my door with the Baruca nut. Mm -hmm. And uh, once he told me the story of it, um, it sounded just too perfect a fit for me and for my wife to not at least check it out. So uh, Darren and his partner, whose name was Rodrigo Figueiredo, whose name still is Rodrigo (laughs) Figueiredo, and who runs the Barucas Inc. company now, we all jumped on a, on a plane and flew to this remote area in Brazil and spent weeks along with my wife doing what uh, we call adventure business travel. Where you?
0: <laughs> so, so for someone listening who doesn't still know what this Baruca nut is, what did you discover there? What, what is, how is this not grown, and why haven't we learned about it before?
2: So what we discovered, which was entirely new to us, is that there's a massive area of the central part of South America that's called the Cerrado in Portuguese. And in Spanish, you can say the Cerrado, and there are areas in Bolivia where they also call it Las Pampas, which is a little confusing because it's not the same thing as the Pampas in Argentina. But it's all the same biome, and it's this huge area of land that's just south of the Amazonian Basin, And um, sadly, while everybody was focusing on the deforestation in the Amazon, it's kind of like, look over here, where they were really deforesting South America was in the Sahadu. at one time, the Sahadu was just blanketed with these trees that I'm going to call Barucas trees. They have so many different names mm-hmm. that, that I could use one of 12 names to describe them. Their correct scientific name is Dipteryx alata vogel, but that's too much of a mouthful, especially for the name of a nut. So we actually made up the name Barucas uh, because in one part of Brazil, there, the tree is known as Baruzeiro. And the first four letters, Baru, in Portuguese you say castanha de Baru because they're saying the, the nut of the Baru tree or the mm-hmm. baruzeiro tree. Um, and so we took those first four letters of the Baru and made Barucas out of it. I can tell you later why we chose to do that instead of using mm-hmm. some other name. But the long and the short of it, these trees that I'm going to call Barucas trees uh, just blanketed that entire biome. And those are the trees that were clear-cut by the millions, millions upon millions, as development happened in, in the central part of South America. And when you actually see the trees pulled out of the ground, it's very disturbing. I've actually seen it because it's still happening, where you um, people will take a chain, wrap it around a group of trees, attach it to the back of a tractor, um, and then pull the tractor yank out the trees and then they set them on fire and basically they burn it up and the ash goes into the ground and be, provide some fertilizer for the first crop that's going to come from it but you can see an area that was completely covered in forest just flat and devastated and what are uh, they in a, what did, in a matter what did, of weeks
0: and what's the purpose of i mean the deforestation is is happening is to replace it with what
2: Yeah, it's happening because uh, people are trying to take care of their families and Mm. and prosper. And um, what they do is they pull down the trees and then they plant in Bolivia. An interesting fact is in Bolivia, there are a large group of Amish people to talk about. It's really ironic that you have um, people who are really people of the soil and really uh, are not trying to be fancy or blingy, and yet they're tearing down these trees to plant uh, uh, farms hmm. uh, to support their families. And in one way or another, that's what they're doing. Now, eventually it becomes corporate size and you have giant companies like Cargill that are m- wanting to buy you know, millions of tons of soy and this is a place in the world where if you rip down the trees, you can cart fertilizer in by train from another part of Brazil and fertilize the ground and you can irrigate it and you can grow acres and upon acres on flat land of, of, of soy. And so initially, most of it was being pulled down for cattle ranching. Mm-hmm. And then I think that morphed into growing things to feed the cattle. And some of that now is is a kind of a trade with China where there's a lot of soy
0: grown in Brazil's Brazil. is the biggest. I mean, Brazil... I don't know about Bolivia necessarily, but Brazil definitely is the biggest exporter of soy, primarily to China. Yeah, that's right. Um, And, you know, this goes to the heart of uh, why in some ways I'm even (laughs) sitting in this room with you, because uh, about nine and a half years ago, I was in Brazil and Argentina. And um, I won't get into the long story of it, but the basic reason why I first got interested in the food industry was when I learned about... um, what was happening in South America and soy, soy production for, to feed um, animals, which, strange as it may sound now, I had no idea that, that cows uh, consumed soy and that the beef I was consuming was inadvertently destroying uh, this part of the world that I was traveling through and, and really enjoying. Um, it's and, a very interesting
2: point, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's one that you've made on your podcast before, that what people choose to eat... Uh, really, is reflected in ultimately how the land is used in the ho- on the whole planet, and um, it's echoed and accelerated by the advertising that's bought with the dollars from the food. You know, if you buy Captain Crunch cereal, there'll be more advertising for Captain Crunch cereal, and if Captain Crunch cereal is made primarily with corn and high fructose corn syrup, it's all corn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to plant a lot of corn, and uh, farmers are going to try to grow it in the most uh, efficient way they can, which may not be the best thing for the planet. Um, So how you vote with your food dollars is something that, you know, I've realized over the many years of my career is uh, reflected in the way the world operates.
0: Yeah, and I also, you know, back to the point you mentioned earlier that in your early days in the food industry and where your focus was, just produce something that people will eat, and that's low-cost um, don't need to think about nutrition, don't need to think about its impact on our ecosystems. And it's not because you were all evil people. And I, I also, and it's funny that you said that because I say that all the time. I mean, I look back at the, I love looking back because if if you haven't learned anything, then what's the point of anything, right? So it, looking back, we've gotten to this point only because we, we made decisions based on the information we had, um, based on what we thought was good for us um, collectively. And uh, the food industry morphed into this, now what looks like this giant destructive system, is because we wanted to find cheap and efficient ways to feed the world. And we applied all the lessons we learned from automation and industrialization into food. And we assumed, well, well, it worked for other things. It'll work for food. And it did work in the sense that we were able to mass produce food to feed our growing population. And so it fulfilled that function, except we didn't have the foresight to see what the downstream implica- implications are. And I think now it's become abundantly clear that when you take something out of the ground, um, when you pull out a natural resource, um, there are going to be implications of that. that. Action results in a product that now is being consumed by millions and billions of people. Um, eventually, you're going to not only may, most likely run out of that natural resource, but the the efforts to sustain that supply chain inadvertently will now impact the local ecosystems. And it, it, to me, learning about food is is like is like peeling the layers of an onion, and and you know discovering how. It just runs deeper and deeper. The problem is so interconnected uh, that it's actually onions are the best examples. Almost like looking at, it's almost like discovering that mushrooms connect are connected to this mycelium network underground Mm -hmm. that basically, in some ways, power the entire planet. Uh, To put that into context of food, when we're when we are making a food choice when we go to the grocery store or we, we, we choose to buy something in a restaurant in a food service setting and we sit down and put it on our plates or snack on it when we're watching TV or Netflix, um, that choice of millions of people to do that thing or billions of people to do that thing is having downstream implications that are far beyond um, the ingredients um, that are used or the method it's manufactured. And I don't know. For me, it's just, it sounds like you, Well, your I, journey has taken you full circle. So, so let's get back to so, Baruchas, but I went on a tangent, but. You no,
2: know, it's a good, it's good. And I'll pick it up there because then Baruchas is a solution and it's a really robust kind of a solution to this kind of a problem because it's a way to completely reverse the damage. Uh, and in a way that's completely sa- sustainable thereafter. You don't with barukas, you don't need to ask somebody to do something for some charitable reason, just you know going out and say, do the right thing, don't cut down any more of these trees. Uh, by, it turns out that Barcas, the tree itself has terrific value to consumers, to a certain type of consumer, at a certain place in the world. And if you can, my belief is that by demonstrating, that the fruits of the barucas tree uh, can produce a perfectly uh, profitable business that will bring prosperity from at every level of the value chain, from the people who pick up the fruit to the people who open it to the middlemen and all the way through to the retailers. and. Finally, my belief is that once, if you can get those nuts like you've had them in a package in your hand, having followed all the food safety regulations and all the things you need to do to make it right for somebody like you to just pick up a bag and open it up and taste them and look at the nutritional benefits and see that they're actually not only for your body, they're the healthiest nut there is, but they are for the planet, the healthiest nut there is. Um, I believe you get people to plant uh, millions of these trees back again. I mean, we have millions and millions of almond trees in California that are sucking up all kinds of water and fertilizer. I think the story on water on almonds is 1,900 gallons of water for a pound of almonds. And then you have a tree that requires absolutely no irrigation, no pesticide, no uh, fumigation of any kind. Uh, No fertilizer. The tree, amazingly, the Baruzedo tree, so the Barucas tree, makes its own fertilizer out of the air. There are very few plants that do it. There there are some. And uh, this is one of them, a gigantic tree that uh, can take the nitrogen out of the air. And then with the help of, um, uh, uh, I forget exactly what they're called, but they're... uh, it grows in the soil, kind of on the roots of the tree. The tree brings this nitrogen into this kind of symbiotic relationship. Plant that's growing with it, and between them, they create fertilizer out of it that not only fertilizes the tree but fertilizes the area around it and produces um, a whole ecosystem of plants that then support animals and so on. So when you put the the Baruchas trees back, you. Uh, reproduce the environment only this time if you're getting something of value off of the tree they not only won't tear them down again they'll plant more of them and that's what my wife and i saw that made us say look there's There's a vision here, but there's no business. Mm. And if you looked at the business dynamics, you had to have an enormous leap of faith to say, I think people will want to consume them. I think they'll be willing to pay the price that's necessary to take care of everybody along the value chain. Let's see if that will work um, and just take a chance on it. But there was an awful lot of investment and still is an awful lot of investment that needs to be uh, made to prove the commercial viability of these trees. Um, Now, a couple years into it, I'm completely convinced of it, and I no longer have any doubt that uh, we will eventually, over these next several years, be planting
0: millions of these trees again. And is there something special about the um, climate and the region that that allows for these trees? Like, Would you possibly be able to grow those trees in California, for example?
2: You know, I have no idea if they would (laughs) grow anywhere else. They don't actually grow anywhere, any other place, except in the Sahadu. They -hmm. don't grow into the Amazon. They don't grow north of the Amazon. And once you're out of the biome that's called the Sahadu, they don't grow anymore either. They're uniquely adapted to that very weird climate. And what's weird about the... The climate is. First of all, the soil is not a very great quality. Almost all the plants that grow in that climate um, have about two thirds of their biomass below the ground. It's really fascinating because okay. it's kind of the flip of the Amazon. Because in jungles, typically the plants have very shallow roots and they grow, and high most of and their biomass tall. is in the air. This is kind of an inverted Amazon where there's only a little bit of the biomass above ground, and then there's this huge root system below, mm-hmm. uh, and the Baruch tree is no exception. It has an enormously long tap root that can go all the way down searching for water. And the significance of that uh, has to do with the climate. It rains just violent um, lightning storms for a couple of months, December, January, uh, and then it goes back bone dry and there's not another drop of water, literally not another drop of water until the next time and until the next year at that time. So it's a really weird climate and it produces a lot of really weird plants that figured out how to adapt themselves to it. And much of what's special about the nutritional qualities of Baruchas comes from the fact that it's what, they say in the literature, is called an adaptogenic plant, a plant that's just uniquely adapted to a harsh environment and has figured out uh, how, to use, how to make uh, fruits and nuts that um, often reflect the harshness in the environment has been uh, uh, offset, by the way, the tricky way, the clever way that the tree works around that environment, uh, which is probably why the, the seeds, what we eat, what we call the nut, um, is as nutritious as it is and why um, it doesn't need, the tree doesn't need any particular caring uh, has to do with its being so adapted to this environment.
0: And so is the fruit as well, uh, is also edible? Yes, the fruit is fascinating. And, um, <laughs> and, and just so that, you know, for, for, for context, I mean, were people in this region consuming this? Is this part of their, uh, is this something they've used over the years uh, and then just lost favor in those regions. Uh, was is is this in any? Was this ever sold as a product before? Um, yeah, I mean, it just seems almost. I mean, it's very. I hate to use this word because it sounds. I guess it's not. What I'm going for is it sounds like a perfect nut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it it uses a little water. It improves the ecosystem. It yeah, it may be unique to one region of the planet, which may be a bit of a problem if you're trying to build a global company or something. Uh, but it it nutritionally seems to be superior to to most nuts that I've heard of. It has low lower calories, less fat content, higher and I'm sure you can tell me more, but this is this is what I've gathered in my research that it seems like this perfect nut. It has this right balance and it also tastes good, more importantly, right so and now you're telling me the fruit's also edible. So I, I'm just I'm thinking, and I'm sure the listener is thinking, what happened? What happened?
2: <laughs> so it's a great uh, uh, story, actually. What happened? So the trees are very old; they've existed for hundreds and hundreds. I'm sure millions of years. I've never actually researched exactly how long ago, but since there were people, and people all, who lived there, the indigenous people always did eat them. There, it's remarkably hard to get the nut out of the fruit. It has a super hard shell. It's something like, it feels to me kind of like bone, that it's uh, sort of light, but very, very dense with sort of crisscrossed fibers, I think. And inside that, the chamber where the seed sits, it's almost perfectly hermetically sealed. It's just remarkable how hard it is to get it open. What the people would do way back is they had the notion of what they called the eternal fire. At night, when they would go to sleep, their campfire, they would put armfuls of this fruit on the campfire to kind of keep it smoldering and warm overnight. Then when they'd get up in the morning, they could take a twig and just start the flame up again. By now, they had uh, essentially smoked this fruit and they could just strike the fruit with a rock and get right at the seed inside. They could crush it with a rock. The seed would be sort of smoky and and, uh, and cooked and ready to eat. And they would make soups out of it and other things. It was an important part of their diet. But what happened was once those people discovered peanuts when they were brought over by Europeans, it's so much easier to grow peanuts than it is to go out in the forest and gather you know, from 60-foot tall trees these fruits that only drop uh, in a particular time of the year. And the effort to get and also by that time, people weren't using campfires so much. And the effort to get the nut out became very great. And so you would find that people really only used them as kind of an ancestral thing. You know, here's a uh, they cut them open with a machete. Half the time, mm-hmm. if you try to cut it up with a machete, you end up cutting the nut itself in half. Um, and that's really why there wasn't I would say, a market for them. Mm. Uh, similarly, the fruit is very weird. It's uh, The fruit itself looks something like an apricot, but if you imagine that the pulp of the apricot on the outside was as dry as the bark of the tree, <laughs> that's what the fruit pulp is. And you can see, again, in that environment with no rain for at least nine months of the year, not a drop, the tree is trying to not waste water mm-hmm. on some plump, juicy fruit. Uh, but that, Bark-like pulp is actually delicious if you peel it off with a pen knife, which is the first thing way I ever tasted it. It's like, wow, it tastes perfumey. It kind of tastes like a rose uh, petal might taste. Um, and it's uh, quite sweet, actually. Uh, sweet enough that the, um, it's nutritious, very nutritious for the, the small animals when the, that will gnaw on the outside of it when it falls to the ground. Uh, keeps them from actually going inside to get at the nut. Mm. They're sort of satisfied with the fruit. But nobody used the fruit much. People would turn it into alcohol. They'd make alcoholic beverage out of it because it has a high enough sugar content to do that. But nobody really takes it and sort of chomps on it. But uh, we have found, and I think it's a really important part of the value chain, uh, we can take the fruit off now. We've developed a process where we boil the whole thing first and then take off uh, strips of the fruit And then they make a lovely crispy chip that's uh, a wonderful complement, actually, to the nut. Mm -hmm. You can chop up the fruit and chop up the nuts, and it makes a great granola, makes a nice trail mix. Um, And I'm sure we'll be developing lots more products from it. So we can not only get at the nut, we can get at the fruit
0: now as well. Wow. So uh, you are – so tell me what you decided to do. I mean, it sounds like you had a charitable trust and you were just exploring the world and – and finding interesting ingredients and looking to to make an impact with um, with the resources that you had. Um, now, let's. How did that now turn into you launching a direct-to-consumer uh, food brand? Well, um, and and so how do you make that leap? And so did you become now the exclusive um, supplier of these nuts? Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of curious. How did this? I could easily see you just supporting that ecosystem and helping to grow, helping the farmers to, to to grow more of those trees. But in some ways, I can, I think, I think in some ways I'm answering a question, which is, the way to incentivize them to grow more trees is to create a market for it.
2: Exactly. So what I'm trying to do, and now what what the trust is trying to do, and I'm the trustee of the trust, and it, the trust was um, granted with uh, with money that I had from another business I had sold. Um, What I'm trying to do is make it clear to the ranchers that if they will grow these trees on their ranch and perhaps put back maybe 25% of the tree cover on their ranches where the cattle are being uh, pastured, that it will not only improve the quality of the ranch itself because they've damaged inadvertently Mm -hmm. and they realize in retrospect the water ecology. And if you're raising cattle, you need to grow grass and the grass needs to grow by itself. And if you mess up the water because you you tore down all the trees, uh, you can support fewer and fewer cattle on the same acreage. So by reforesting those ranches in a very sensible way with little groves of trees, maybe 25% of the whole ranch covered with trees, but not one big forest, just sort of dotted around, um, they'll have a new source of income. What Barucas Inc. does is uh, promise to buy all of that fruit hmm. at a set price and known price and to do it in a way that the farmer can be certain of getting a 20%, 25% um, internal rate of return on what it costs to grow the tree. So we provide the trees themselves. Um, I'm hoping that we'll find more and more ranchers who will want to do this on their land so that we don't have to buy the land to plant the trees on. And what we don't want is massive plantations like rubber plantations that have their own, come with their own problems. You know, we want to put the earth back something more similar to the way it originally was with mixed forests and and mixed um, food uh, uh, plantations and ranches. Uh, But to get there, to me, the first step is you have to demonstrate that all the fruit that's falling on the ground in the wild can be gathered and sold. Mm -hmm. Um, And once you've done that, then the story that it's time to plant more trees will be a no-brainer. Right. And so our first step has been to uh, demonstrate that consumers in the West, when they find out about the nutritional benefits, um, you were mentioning some of them, higher in fiber, much higher than fiber, um, a, a very good quality of vegan fat, but not too much of it, uh, meaning that it's lower calories than other nuts. You know. Nuts are a very healthy food in general, and when you speak with dietitians, they typically will recommend for anybody, even somebody who's watching their weight, that when they're feeling, as the English would say, peckish, a little hungry, <laughs> um, that they should eat a small handful of nuts. Mm-hmm. And the reason they say that is because they're very satiating. Because of the, the blend of protein and fat and fiber all in the same place, just a little bit will take the edge off your hunger between meals. Uh, but the only thing dietitians don't like about them is that they are high in calories. Um, so to have a nut that's lower in calories than other nuts is a is a benefit to everybody. And as we've uh, told people um, who are interested in their health, um, ideally, people who are vegan or vegetarian or watching their weight, um, uh, people who care about what they're what they're putting in their mouth beyond what it tastes like. Uh, They find what you found. They Mm -hmm. taste great uh, and um, surprisingly good. If somebody tells you something is a superfood, you usually expect it not to taste so great. Wow, this doesn't taste like a superfood. It tastes like a a regular food. Um, And so I think, you know, we've been, to my satisfaction, I know now that uh, people love them and that they're quite, they find it a good value to uh, buy them at the price that uh, most of the premium nuts sell at. Uh, which is something in the, in the vicinity of 15 to 20 dollars a pound um and that's enough to make this whole value chain happen with fair trade and uh responsible uh stewardship, stewardship of the planet
0: right and so i it totally makes sense why you almost inadvertently ended up starting a company uh it didn't seem like that was the intention, but it seemed like if you, were, if you wanted to solve this problem and you, if you wanted to, to help the, the local ecosystem and the, the communities in that part of the world, this creating a market for this nut would, it would then end up solving that problem. The, the secondary question then is, um, how did you decide that you wanted to market the nut directly as a product? Um, Because you could have possibly also used it as an ingredient. Um, A recent example of a a nut I'd never heard of before, but I heard of because it is one of the ingredients in a new product that's launched is a a plant-based yogurt that uses the peely nut. Uh, Not just the peely nut, it mixes it with other ingredients. Um, Did you consider applications like that to say... Can we milk this nut? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I was joking about this earlier, but we we kind of, in the in the plant-based food industry, the, the running joke is that there's no nut, seed, grain um, that hasn't been milked at this point. <laughs> yeah, you can go to the non-dairy, I mean, you can go to the dairy aisle and they're crowded with options over there. Um, so, yeah, did you explore other applications um, and, and and decide that you want to first just launch with the nuts and then see where that goes? Um, so this is the multi-layered question, and the second part is: uh, I know you're doing some, you're looking to wholesale as well, but uh, are you, you could could you become an ingredient supplier? Is that potentially an in, 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 um, some some intention you have? Because what if someone listening to this is it's a cheese company playing around with ingredients is now thinking, wait a minute, this may be the ingredient I'm looking for, and it sounds like sustainable, it has the sustainability argument that almonds don't have. Um, yeah, so so w- w- walk me through your decisions and then, of course, your, your decisions so far and then, of course, where you see the potential and the possibilities. So
2: uh, my decisions were informed by the experience I had in the previous two businesses I worked in, which was the Jeans Company and then uh, Beachbody. And in the Jeans Company, one of the things I learned was uh, if you want to be in broad distribution, get in very narrow, specialized stores first. Get some sales to people who really care, and then let the other buyers come to you. When it becomes organically, the word starts getting out from people who care about it, that are going to be your most intense consumers. So, in the jeans business, that meant you know we we were in uh, high end fashion boutiques. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow bought a pair of our jeans in a store. The next thing you know, she's in Vogue magazine wearing the, the the jeans and there's a little blurb about them. No PR, mind you. It just happens. Mm. And then suddenly all the boutiques from Japan are calling you and all over the place. And then the next thing you know, you're in a few hundred uh, very exclusive boutiques. And then Neiman Marcus calls you. And then when you're in Neiman Marcus, then uh, uh, Sachs calls you. And then eventually you've got Nordstrom's. Mm. And it's not too many years until you know, J.C. Penney is calling you. Um, So I want to mention that's one of the things that informed my decision about starting very simply and starting online, where nowadays it's so cool and such a wonderful part of the world. Remember, I'm an old dude, so to me, you know, the Internet is still something fairly new. Um, it's so amazing that you can reach out to people through what we now call influencers on the Internet. But it's really just anybody mm-hmm. like you who has an audience. And some people have an audience of five people. Some people have an audience of 500 and some people have an audience of five million. Um, but because of the way you know, we can pass information to each other through the Internet now – uh, I really believe that if you start it online, you're going to find people who care about the planet, who care about what they're eating, who, that this is going to be a perfect fit for them, and then they're going to be very loyal consumers. And you won't have to spend all your money trying to get the message out or trying to get some kind of uh, positioned or sort mm. of semi phony message out. <laughs> you can just take the product to the people who would really want it and really benefit from it, and then they're just going to stay there and loyally uh, buy them and be happy with the value proposition. And you won't have to be giving them coupons or, uh, free shipping or, you know, somehow some gimmick to Mm -hmm. make them want to buy something instead of something else. And, um, it is working. In fact, there, there are now many thousands and thousands of, of consumers online of Baruchas that just buy them either at baruchas.com or at, uh, the Amazon store at amazon.com. And, uh, we began being approached by retailers as soon as they saw that happening. And uh, we're just sort of waiting for folks who would be interested uh, to come to us. I'm dying, frankly, to have a um, a coffee chain uh, mm-hmm. knock on our door because I can't think of a better match for organic coffees and responsibly grown coffees and so on than to pair them with a nut that tastes great with coffee and that like the coffee comes from... Uh, a faraway place, in mm. a remote place, and requires a lot of responsible stewardship in between uh, the consumer and the um, and the farmer. Um, so I am hopeful that mm-hmm. there will be ingredients uh, uh, that, I, by the way, it's a fact uh, I know now that they taste amazing in chocolate. <laughs> we had a company in Chicago that approached us and had us send them. Uh, both the fruit crisps mm. uh, and the nuts and they just put them out on a tray I guess and poured delicious uh, <laughs> dark, you know, properly organic and fair traded chocolate over them and just cut them into squares and uh, it's something like eating a, a, um, I would say a, a Nestle crunch bar with a Heath bar at the same time because mm. the the fruit has that little caramelly taste like of, of what's inside a Heath bar um, so I think they will end up in all kinds of uh, products over time. But the direct answer to the question was, I thought, because of your own experience with it, just the nut by itself tastes <laughs> great. And it's the simplest way to tell a story, to just say, it's the healthiest nut on the planet, is very straightforward. And we just say, it's good for you, good for the planet. And I don't have to explain about milk or uh, yeah.
0: Anything else? That's true. I mean, and also because you, you, you in some ways, contr- I don't say control, but you, you are, you have end-to-end ownership over the supply chain here. Uh, in some ways, right? You are the yeah. you are the source in encouraging um, ranchers to plant more of these trees, um, so you can obtain, you can, you can fulfill the demand that you are now creating by exactly. selling the nuts, and and it's sort of a way to. It's kind of a push me, pull you. First, we create right. the demand. Yeah. Then we go and 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 make you know we sure were we talking about this it. before we hit record today, but this whole, you know, everything in business sort of, um, I mean, I let you say it. The your, your basic rule of uh, of <laughs> demand, supply, and uh, and accounting.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story. On It's so a funny old guy. It's got to be at least forty years old. Forty years ago, when I was a very young business guy, told me, you know, business is really very simple. You got the people who sell it, you got the people who make it, and then you got the people in, in between them who keep score. They're called the accounting department. He said, when you're running a business, all you have to do is check with the people who are keeping score every day and ask them who's winning, the guys who are making it or the guys who are selling it. And whichever one is winning, you got to go to the other one and yell at them. So <laughs> when the guys who are making it are behind, you know, yell at the guys who are, uh, excuse me, when they're ahead, go yell at the guys who, who need to sell more. And when they're selling more than they're making, then go yell at the guys who are Who are making it. Yeah. And so that is kind of for me, for these two years, that's been the story of Baruchas, is got to balance the supply and the demand. And um, we also talked about this before. There's nothing worse that you can possibly do to destroy a business than create a partner through some sales channel. Mm -hmm. You know, if let's say the coffee shop Mm -hmm. uh, starts selling them and is happy with them and you can't supply them. That is the end of your business. It's the end of your reputation, and you've made a mess of everything, and the trees will never get planted. So you have to be very, very careful that whoever, wherever you promise to
0: uh, supply, that you're going to be able to keep your word. Yeah. And in terms of Baruka's Inc. and and Selling the Nuts, um, is it, I I know it's online, but is it also, are you in any retail stores? We are. um, So...
2: We've seen that it definitely sells beautifully online. And you can go on Instagram and see the thousands of people who are posting stories about it. And by the way, you can go on Amazon.com or uh, Barucas.com and look at the reviews and you'll see they're, you know, well into the four and a half and above. So people who are buying them are really liking them uh, at the price that they're paying for them. Um, So, yeah, retailers uh, did find them online. And whenever they call us, um, we... Uh, We supply them. And the first retailers, the ones uh, at the very beginning that go back about two years now, was uh, Air One, which is a California, uh, relatively small California chain that um, I think is growing rapidly and uh, is very popular amongst the people who shop there and has very, very loyal shoppers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're exactly the kind of people who would like this sort of product. So Air One took them a couple years ago. And uh, without any promotion of any kind... Uh, they continue to increase on a per store sales basis, and every time they open a new store, they're putting them into the new store. And so, I have no doubt that at retail, they really do a pretty good job of taking care of themselves as long as the retailer has the kinds of customers that um, are a good match mm-hmm. with this product. Uh, the other, um, there's an, another company called um, uh, Sun Life Organics. And uh, they have a, a number of stores that are kind of a mixture of a, kind of a coffee bar, juice bar. in Mal- Malibu was the first one, was it? Yeah, okay. yeah. I think they have about 16 now. Oh, I don't okay. know I've, I've forgotten exactly how many they have, but they also began quite a while ago. and the same experiences with Air One. And since that uh, since then, um, m- I think more than a year ago now, we were contacted by a really large um, US chain uh, that takes, an enormous amount of work to get vetted by them for food safety, especially if you're gathering a product in a remote area of the world that's not known for the highest um, hygiene. They put you through um, every possible um, certification and so on to make sure that your product is safe. And again, that takes a lot of investment. because. Uh, there's a lot of certifications that you have to get. And to get the certifications, you need to do all kinds of things and make all kinds of investments to make sure that that uh, the retailer can safely sell the product and know that nobody's going to get um, any pathogens for it, from right. it or anything like that. So uh, we will, in roughly the beginning of next year, um, the product will be launched in a large chain into all of their stores all over the United States. Um so retailing, yes, is happening, um, and uh, coffee shops have happened a little bit, but mm-hmm. there's a long way to go. And new products, by the way, the fruit, the most important thing now for us is uh, I know we can sell all the nuts we can pick up. Now we have to sell all the fruit too. Mm. So you have any new products
0: on the, on the, sh- uh, on the horizon?
2: Yeah, so well, there'll be the nut butter. Mm. Uh, will be coming out uh, very shortly, in just a matter of weeks, uh, online. Um, we have a, a company that uh, has been formulating a milk. <laughs> mm. <laughs> after, after your comments, you, know, you couldn't possibly miss the milk. Uh, I think once we get past the summer, we'll probably introduce the um, chocolate varieties. Mm. Uh, we'll probably, I think, within a matter of months, have a granola. Uh, we already have a trail mix. And... Um, I think there's more to come after that. So yeah, a lot. Well, the fruit crisps, uh, a lot
0: of things need to be made with the fruit. Mm-hmm. And so, where do you see this business evolving into? I mean, you kind of give us a sense of of your expansion plans, and it sounds like you've been building up to this point, and the possibilities are almost endless. But but I like the way that you've been approaching it in a in a very step by step manner rather than than then you know do something that risks that balance between demand and supply um so this way you're able to make you you're able to, to turn up the dial um when you want to turn up the dial rather than when you feel forced into and then you basically destroy <laughs> the, yeah the system. It,
2: incidentally to create the supply at this point there's plenty on the ground but you have to go village by village through this ecosystem and uh explain to people that you're going to pay them and you have to give them cash up front out of your pocket. You can't give them a check or a promise. And uh, basically show the villagers that they can go out Mm. into the forest and collect these fruits. So uh, you can expand supply, but you have to do it. um, It's not a snap your finger, just turn the faucet on. You you really have to build the infrastructure.
0: So it sounds like as, you know, it all came out of the trust that you were that you established. It came out of you connecting with this issue and seeing the impact it could make. But it sounds like it's going to be a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I asked that is, you know, you you mentioned a couple of times that this is your second retirement. It doesn't sound like something you, you seem to be. You've taken on a project that, uh, and I'm sure you're not doing it alone, of course. But uh, at the same time, what, what's driving you to keep? doing this now? Like, what's what makes you really excited about this mission and the focus of Barucas?
2: Well, I, you've already brought out, what it sort of speaks for itself. I don't feel like I have to. I've heard other people on your podcast, by the way, say that, you know, I'm trying to make up for the sins of the past. <laughs> and yeah, I was a Nestle guy at, at a time when Nestle was being boycotted <laughs> because of the things that it was doing in its products. And I, I don't feel... You know, it's not that I'm trying to make up for something bad in the past. It feels to me like it's all the different things that I've done in my career sort of coming together in a perfect way that's just sort of telling me this is a great way to spend the rest of your life. And that's what it is. You know, and all honestly, I probably have 20, 25 good years ahead of me to uh, uh, do something that's both interesting and useful. And if along the way I can make a bunch of other people prosperous, I'm really happy about that too. Uh, Everything from uh, the people in, in Baruca's Inc. to the actual people foraging, to the people in Baruca's Brazil, um, and to the people at the retailers and eventually the others who I'm sure will join us. And someday there'll be that coffee shop. Um, I'm really happy to share all of that with everybody.
0: Mm -hmm. And of course you are, you know, you've worked in the food industry for, for decades. You've, you obviously understand the good, bad, and the ugly of it. Um, and you know we we kind of touched on this in the beginning, and I and I mentioned why uh, why the whole story of the barukas nut and the tree is so fascinating, and and kind of is an interesting way to illustrate so many things about what's wrong with food uh, by by showing this is how you can do it right. And I know this is just you know I, I don't mean to say it's just a nut, but hey, this so that's what makes it even more interesting. It's just a nut, but but look at the impact it can have. And almond is also just a nut, but look at the impact it's having on on um, on uh, ecosystem, and look at how popular it is as a global commodity at the moment. So, obviously, I know you you are driven by by, by this idea of of um, of creating an end product that that has a market that has the demand, but at the same time, the Increased supply is only going to help, not hurt local ecosystems. Uh, is only going to help, not hurt people's health. Um, and so that obviously, you know, you didn't you didn't say too much about it, but it, it tells me that you are, in some ways, uh, inadvertently focused on solving this big omission of fixing our food system and and the problems and the evils. And you're not, I know, you're not making up no. for prior sins, but here's what we are we are in the year twenty nineteen. The facts are clear that if we continue uh, business as, as usual with our food system and we naively keep pushing forward with uh, the idea about uh, selling the food at the lowest possible cost to the most amount of people, health and planetary impact be damned, we are going to end up in a, in a terrible place in, in, a say, 30 years from now, probably even sooner, according to some estimates— you will run out of fresh water. We will have destroyed all our healthy soil. And what good is um, a profitable food company if you can't pr- obtain any, any ingredients to produce products anymore? So to me, it's not even about good, bad. It's reality, right? It's not even about—it's not a morality argument. It is if we produce food the way we do it today and we keep selling products that are destructive— eventually the companies that are now profiting from it are going to have a problem. And they are, including Nestle, are very well aware of it. Yeah, they are. They, they, and that's why they are. some of them are acquiring companies in the plant-based food space. They are focused on sustainability. They see the future. They see the water challenges they're going to face. That's just one amongst many issues. So right now with Barucas, obviously you seem to be on a path where it, it is part of a bigger... Um, tapestry or an ecosystem of solutions that will hopefully course correct, uh, uh, the pathway on and take us to a future where we will be able to feed, um, 10 billion people estimated to be on this planet by 2050, uh, in a healthy way without destroying our ecosystems. Uh, what is your vision of that future? So well, if you succeed and we all succeed, what does that future in 2050 look so,
2: like? So first, I absolutely believe we can fix it. Okay. I'm very optimistic about it. I, I know things sound awful, climate change, uh, destruction of water, etc. It's awful. But I do think that people are able to fix the things that they mess up. And um, by the way, I think technology is an important part of the future in food as well. When I imagine cars That drive themselves, it immediately makes me think of tractors that are able to drive around trees so that if you're going to have a a farm, it doesn't have to be a farm with no trees on it in order to be able to drive a tractor in a perfectly straight line and sow all the seeds and spray all the stuff they spray on it and then pick all the stuff without ever coming across a tree. I think that technology will make it possible to have mixed food farms. And I think what we do with barukas might help to show the way to that, that a cattle ranch shouldn't just grow cattle. It should grow trees, too. And it shouldn't just be a grass farm. It should be a nature farm, growing all the things that nature meant to grow on that land carefully balanced with the cattle that you're raising. You know, if you're vegan, I apologize for suggesting that there's anything good at all about raising cattle, but not everybody is vegan. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm also a great believer in, in freedom and in markets. And I think people should be free to choose to eat what they want to eat. Uh, when I see people who obviously have eaten very poorly, and it's a terrible uh, effect on their on their on the quality of their life as they get older, um, what I wish for them is simply that they have more information. I don't think, gee, they made awful choices. Uh, what I think is they probably made uninformed choices. And if people have all those choices in front of them to pick from, um... Some people will choose to be unhealthy, and some people will choose to do things that are unhealthy for the planet, but my belief is that most people will choose their own personal health, the health of their family, and the health of the planet uh, when they know how to go about doing it. But people are, in fact, awfully busy. They're struggling just to make a living, and they don't have time to go out and figure out which is the best nut for them. So I think it falls to us to give them those choices and to give them the information like you're doing not only through this podcast directly to people, but also through the um, the business people who listen to this uh, podcast and make choices that ultimately affect what the consumer knows and what the consumer has available to them. So that's how I feel. I think it's, I think it's all going to work out in the end, but we each need to do what's in front of us, like you said, one step at a time, not trying to cure everybody's problem at once. But if I can just lead the world to want to plant a few million uh, or Actually, I'd like to be a few tens of millions of uh, Baruchas trees back where they belong. I'd be very happy about that.
0: Well, Seth, I find this story super fascinating, and I'm so glad I got to share it today. And um, and I'm excited to see where the future of Baruchas goes. And uh, you know, who knows? Maybe uh, a few years down the line, everyone's gonna know what this nut is, and we'll look back at this conversation as one of those. First moments where many people who didn't know about it before now found out about it, hopefully, and um, it kind of um, leads to these these endpoints, these these improvements that we all desperately need to see. Um, And you know, I think I love that you end on you you ended as just you know sounding like an optimist. Of course, my question was a leading question. You can't help (laughs) but be optimistic, Uh, but. At the same time, if you're not optimistic, you're not working on solutions and, and complaining about the face, fate of the planet and the fact that we may have only 10, 12, 15, whatever years until we, it's too late to do anything is all great. Uh, you still have 25 hours in the day to start working on the solutions. And I think if you all can kind of figure out what our specific role is to play in this larger effort to solve these, what's seemingly what what seem to be very big and gigantic problems that are going to take decades to solve uh, is the only way they will get solved. So I appreciate the work that you're doing, and I'm and I'm so glad that you are not uh, uh, not using your retirement to just play golf all day long. Although there's probably nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do, <laughs> but uh, but it's a worthy effort, and I appreciate you doing the work you do and coming on this podcast today. Well, thank you so
2: much for having me. It was a pleasure being here. And I hope the next time we're uh, sharing some Baruca's
0: cheese and a glass of organic wine. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.